This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. This is Joshua Lewis with The Remnant Radio. Thank you so much every time, Michael, uh, for tuning in to uh, this episode. We're going to be talking with Dr. Sam Storms about his new book uh, and the gifts of the Spirit, kind of uh, diving into the gifts, talking about those, getting some clarity. So if you have questions on the gifts of the Spirit, ask them as we are rolling into the show. Uh, Before we get to that, I want to tell you guys a little bit about Remnant Radio. We are a theology broadcast. If you're new here, uh, we interview pastors and teachers from different churches and different denominations every single week. Our goal is to listen to the experts, momentarily kind of suspend our presuppositions, and really to be challenged with these different streams of Christian faith. Uh, Challenge what we believe, challenge our exegesis as we look at the scriptures so we can better understand God's word and the God who has given us his word. To my left, your right, is Michael Roundtree, the co-host of this wonderful show. Uh, Michael, how's your week been? I've had a good week. I mean, it's Monday, so it's going well so far. It's our third interview. It's, but it's uh, well, this is our second. Yeah, that's right. And we have a third one uh, actually coming up. Dr. Ben Witherington is going to talk about. Uh, I don't know. I don't want to make Dr. Sam Storms upset here, but he's going to talk about Arminianism. <laughs> that's right. And so, so that's uh, coming up at eight thirty Central Time. Uh, and we just had a conversation with. Uh, with Dr. Peter Lightheart. Lightheart, yes. So many names today. We, I, we're kind of y'all. You guys are actually making. They're making jokes in the comments right now, and they're saying you guys are gonna have dark circles in your eyes after all these interviews consecutive. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, had a great conversation about the Ten Commandments, uh, really deep and and full conversation, and so uh, just a lot of great shows. And last week's Todd White interview. Uh, really, really exciting. We were planning on a one-hour interview. He ended up going, we spent a whole afternoon with him, and it was three hours long. And Sam, we actually expect that from you. Uh, <laughs> it, it was It's three hours of footage, and we're going to be releasing it over the next uh, the next few weeks. But it was just uh, really powerful. Talked about just, uh, just asking Todd some of the theological questions that a lot of people have been asking over all the years. Did we lose Sam? We did. We lost him, but you keep talking about it. It's been, it's been, it was a good conversation. He's back. There he is. Uh, It was a good conversation because uh, there's a lot of kind of gray areas. One of the things that the Pentecostal charismatic movement is really well known for is not having precise language. Not to be said of our guest, who has good language when talking about uh, <laughs> Pentecostal charismatic expression, uh, but to say that many in the Pentecostal stream uh, just aren't very good at articulating things like Christology and aren't really good at art- art- articulating those things. Having been raised in that movement myself, yeah. I'm not making but accusations. We, but we touch on about five or the five or six of the sort of potential heresies yeah. that Todd has been accused of over the years. And uh, and we were just very forthright, and he was very forthright with us. It was a powerful interview. It's you guys are going to be excited about it. Yeah. So, But we're excited uh, uh, about Dr. Sam Storms being with us. Dr. Storms, you've been on the show before. We're familiar like with you. Times, yeah. but, uh, but tell our viewers just a little bit about yourself and your ministry, as well as your newly released book. Yeah. Sure. Well, I'm currently and have been for the last 12 years, senior pastor of Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City. Uh, Before that, um, gosh, what all did I do? I taught at college for four years. I was uh, on staff at the um, Vineyard in Kansas City that eventually became Metro Christian Fellowship, out of which was birthed uh, the International House of Prayer. Um, Gosh, born and raised in Oklahoma. University of Oklahoma graduate, Dallas Theological Seminary graduate, got my PhD at the University of Texas at Dallas. Um, I uh, I blog a lot and have put virtually everything that I've written in some form or other on my website, samstorms.org, uh, .org. Um, it's there for anybody to use, make use of any way they see fit. And the book that you just mentioned is this not being arrogant, but 
I, I tried to address every single conceivable question and issue relating to the work of the Holy Spirit in, in terms of uh, his gifts. So um, it's about a 360-page book. Um, it's, a, it's a big one. I wrote the Beginner's Guide to Spiritual Gifts, gosh, what was it, 10, 12 years ago. Um, and it, the difference between a beginner's guide and a comprehensive guide is about 200 pages. <laughs> so, um, well, do you ever address the spiritual gift of reverse healing? Because when Josh prays oh, for people, they actually yeah. get sicker. It's unfortunate. It is very unfortunate. Yes. <laughs> okay. So I don't think I've ever come across that one. He just, he just, no, was not that comprehensive. Okay. Well, uh, so let's talk, uh, diving into the content of the book and it's spiritual gifts. It's everything. I think the first thing we've got to do is decide which gifts we're talking about because, uh, you know, for a significant portion of Christendom, uh, the so-called miraculous gifts or supernatural gifts, we might not like that designation, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Uh, prophecy, healing, miracles, etc., have ceased. And I know you talk about this in your book. Uh, could you speak into a little bit the debate between cessationism and continuationism and just kind of introduce that, and, I, and then maybe we can begin to dig into it a little bit? Sure. Well, I was a cessationist for uh, probably the first 15 years of my pastoral ministry um, and just finally came to the point where um, I was challenged by our mutual good friend, Jack Deere, uh -huh. when uh, he asked me what I believed on this issue. And I told him, and his question was, where's that in the Bible? That's a dangerous <laughs> question to ask, um, because I didn't have a good answer for him. And so I went back and began to study scripture and just came to the conclusion that the arguments that I'd been taught for so many years uh, really just weren't valid. Uh, I, I bought into them, but I hadn't looked closely at the text that supposedly supported them. And uh, just through considerable study and prayer and uh, uh, research, I came to the conclusion that God intended for all gifts of the Spirit to be operative throughout the entire present age until the second coming of Christ. Um, I think, you know, in uh, Acts chapter 2, uh, on the day of Pentecost, where Peter says that in the latter days, quoting Joel, um, the Spirit of God will be poured out on all flesh, and they'll prophesy and have dreams and visions. And, of course, these are the people who had been speaking in tongues on the day of Pentecost. In the latter days is a reference to this entire age in which we live. It's not just uh, the last days of the first century or the last days of the 21st century. It's the whole inter-Advent church age, mm -hmm. uh, which I believe is to be by this kind of work of the Spirit. So um, I, I just looked at all the texts that I had been told, uh, suggested the cessation of certain gifts, and I found out that that's not a, what they say at all, that none of them, um, in fact, uh, suggest that, much less require it. Uh, I have actually three chapters in this new book. I set forth the arguments that cessationists typically use, uh, I respond to those arguments, and then I have an, uh, a chapter defending continuationism, and then I have an entire chapter on church history. And the reason is because there are, there are basically two um, explicit arguments that cessationists use. Now, they have reasons for their beliefs, but these are the two most off-sided. One is that they are convinced that if there are still revelatory gifts of the Spirit, that undermines or compromises the finality and the sufficiency of Scripture. That's a big argument that I respond to at great length in my book. And then the other argument is they say, well, when we look at church history, the gifts pretty much disappeared after the first century, certainly by the third or fourth century. And so the chapter on church history, I cite numerous, if not dozens, of uh, original sources uh, which indicate that the gifts, in fact, were still very much operative. You know, the, this idea, I've, I've heard it repeated so many times, um, these gifts died out soon after the death of John the Apostle, and there's just massive amounts of evidence to the, to the contrary. Uh, very reputable church fathers, all of whom are saying, we've seen the gifts, we've experienced the gifts, they're still operative. Uh, even Augustine, um, into the uh, late fourth, early fifth century, who was initially a cessationist, finally he had to write retractions, said, I was wrong. 
He said, I've, I've personally witnessed 70 miraculous healings in my own parish. And he said, I couldn't even begin to list all the examples uh, of God working in this way. So bottom line is, um, uh, apart from any experience, apart from any uh, other motivations, uh, just I hope, honestly, based on what I saw in the Word of God, I embrace continuationism and try to def- defend it uh, all through this book. So this book is about, I address uh, the 21 gifts that are explicitly mentioned in the New Testament, plus maybe three additional ones that aren't. Uh, that's a controversial issue, but maybe we can get into it later. Uh, but again, the, the book is more than just about spiritual gifts. Uh, it's it's about the power of the Holy Spirit for Christian living in general and how um, uh, there's not much hope for accomplishing anything that will exalt the Lord Jesus or build up his people apart from the um, consistent empowering work of the Spirit in us. And so I hope and, and trust that this book will help awaken people to that truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious. Um, so one of the arguments that you just the, that you talked about is the kind of the the use of the canon, right? To say uh, because uh, we mm-hmm. believe the canon is closed, Revelation has closed. Uh, it's because of that, or it's because we believe the, the canon is closed that we have to believe that tongue speech and prophecy has spe- ceased. That they'll say that you know God can heal at His own sovereign will, however He wants, but. Uh, we don't believe that God is still speaking today because of the way that we look at Scripture. They're afraid that if you open that door, um, mm-hmm. any kind of prophetic word is equivalent to Scripture. Can you maybe um, explain to us those kind of uh, the differences between Scripture and prophecy and the way that we are to look at those things and the authority that each of those has? Um, I've often heard that uh, prophet, and I'm, I'm kind of unpacking a very large question here, uh, that prophecy is not scripture. I've never met a continuationist who believes that prophecy is scripture, yet um, I have a hard time understanding the kind of weight a prophetic word should have on an individual. Um, If it is the voice of God, if I know that it's the voice of God, if I don't obey it, is it sin? It's a hard kind of space for me to kind of make sense of. Uh, Can you help us with that? Sure. Let me take that last point you just made first, and then I'll swing back around, circle back around address the, the broader issue. How do you respond to prophetic words and, uh, you know, how binding on us are they? Paul spoke explicitly to that very question in 1 Thessalonians 5. Everybody knows this text, uh, but let me just mention it again. Um, he says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So Paul is saying very clearly, when you get a prophetic word, um, as much you might be inclined to despise it and to reject it and disregard it, and maybe and people probably in the first century were probably doing that for the same reason that people do it today. Maybe somebody had abused it. Maybe they attempted to control somebody's life through a prophetic word. Maybe they were asserting their own importance or trying to gain authority. Who knows what? Maybe they made a prediction and it didn't come to pass. And so there was this tendency on the part of the Thessalonians to just say, look, let's just dismiss this altogether. These things are not helpful. Paul's saying, no, if you despise prophetic utterances, you're preaching the spirit, you're sinning. Now, that doesn't mean that you gullibly embrace everything that comes under the the guise of a prophetic word or claims to be a prophetic word. So you don't just say, oh, because somebody spoke to me um, in that way, now I am... uh, bound by God and morally and biblically to obey it. Paul didn't say that. He says, don't despise prophecies, but test them. In other words, examine the prophetic utterances, examine them in light of scripture, examine them in light of the apostolic tradition, examine them in light of what we know to be the purpose of prophecy from 1 Corinthians 14, 3, to educate or to edify, encourage, and console believers. Examine them by their tendency to promote love, Bring them to the community. Let wise men and women evaluate these words. Um, All of these things are to be brought to bear on um, determining whether and how much of a word is of God and what isn't. And then he says, um, hold fast to what is good. In other words, when you've sifted and and discerned as best you can, and you say, yeah, I I think that most of what you just said it's true. It rings true. It's consistent with the word of God. Paul says, hold fast to it. But then he says, abstain from every form of evil. 
And most people take that as, you know, they apply it all across the board. But in context, he's talking about when somebody claims to have a prophetic word and it's contrary to scripture and it undermines uh, our our growth in Christ and it creates division in the body. He said, abstain from it, reject it. So if somebody says, well, how are we supposed to respond um, to these purported prophetic words uh, today? I see just like Paul said to examine, test, sift, weigh. When you determine what is good and accurate and helpful, embrace it, reject that which is not. Now, come back. I'm, I'm the same. We're going to circle back around. Remind me again of what you asked at the beginning. Um, the, the, the first question what was is? just kind of about, about the authority of Scripture and the authority of prophecy. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I got it. Takes a while for this old head to kind of you know, <laughs> not to worry. You're doing guys. you're doing a better job than I would have already. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Here here's the here's the issue that is so much at the forefront of this debate, and that is that my cessationist friends say, if you believe that prophecy and word of knowledge and other revelatory gifts are still valid and God is still speaking. Do you not compromise the finality and the, and the sufficiency of Scripture? Now, the answer, obviously, that is no, because there is a difference between what we call canonical revelation, revelation from God that he intended to be included within the final canon of the 66 books of the Bible. So that's canonical revelation, inherent, infallible, inspired, authoritative, uh, cannot be taken from or added to and what we might call congregational prophecy, which is what Paul had in mind. For example, if I can quickly turn there, in 1 Corinthians 14, he's describing a kind of a typical church gathering. And he says, um, he says, let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. So there again is that call for examination, weighing, assessing, evaluating. And then he says this, if a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first one be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. Well, so here's here's this multitude of people in the Corinthian church, maybe multiple house churches. And, of course, Paul would have given the same instruction to all the other churches uh, throughout the world in which he ministered. And he's saying, look, when the Spirit reveals something to you, um, you need to yield to somebody else and, and give them an opportunity to share what they have spoke of what God has shown them because you can all prophesy one by one. Well, nobody's contending that somebody ought to write these down and slide them in behind the book of Revelation. Um, these are uh, spontaneous disclosures from the Spirit that obviously since they come from God, they are infallible and errant. God doesn't mislead or lie. But when we then interpret what was revealed, sometimes we make mistakes. And then when we try to apply that that interpretation to people's lives, again, sometimes we make mistakes. So the, the spiritual gift of prophecy is merely speaking forth in human words what the Spirit of God has spontaneously brought to mind. It was never intended by God to be included in the canon of Scripture. It doesn't compete with Scripture in the least. So um, let me right there, let me just address one other quick question that, that we raised earlier. People say, how can you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture if you believe that God is still speaking? Now, I want to make this very clear. I believe in the gift of prophecy precisely because I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh -huh. What is the sufficiency of Scripture? What do we mean by that? What we mean by it, and again, this is universally agreed. Cessationists would affirm this as well that the Bible gives us everything we need to know to live godly in Christ Jesus. Amen. That all ethical norms, all the theological truths that we need to, to know about God are given to us in the canonical word, the 66 books, as well as all the warnings that we need to heed, all the, the things that we need to avoid, um, the issues that we need to push back on. All those are given to us in Scripture. Now, my question is this, if prophecy and word of knowledge and word of wisdom are somehow dangerous and a threat 
to the sufficiency of God's revealed word, why is there not a single solitary syllable in Scripture that says that? Uh-huh. In other words, if you believe that the word of God that I have, the written word of God, is fully sufficient, comprehensive in telling me what I should do and what I shouldn't do, what I should embrace, what I should reject. We have to ask the question, what does it say about spiritual gifts? What does it say about prophecy? Very clearly, earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. First Corinthians 14.1. Paul repeats that command in 1 Corinthians 14.39. Every, Paul's 1 Thessalonians 5, don't despise prophetic utterances. So here's my point. It's the all-sufficient scriptures that are saying that. In other words, it's not like... Um, People after the canon was formed sat down and thought, "Hey, let's let's uh, let's create this thing called revelatory spiritual gifts, and um, we'll we'll uh, follow the dictates of whatever we believe about them." No, these revelatory gifts are described and commanded and impressed upon the people of God in Scripture. Now, if we believe that Scripture is sufficient to warn us about things we should avoid. If there is something that, that, that is going to come to pass in the life of God's people that would undermine the final authority of God's word, wouldn't God's word have told us that? And it does. It tells us just the opposite. It tells us to embrace these gifts. Don't despise them. Um, test them, weigh, examine them, but then hold fast to what is good. So my point It's precisely because I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture that I'm going to obey what it tells me to do with regard to revelatory gifts. And nowhere in the sufficient sufficient Scriptures that we all embrace does it ever say, hey, watch out, Uh, that, that gift of prophecy and that possibility that the Spirit might reveal something to you spontaneously, that's dangerous, that's going to undermine the authority of God's written word. Not a syllable in Scripture suggests that. Hmm. So I hope that kind of addresses yeah. the point. Yeah, that's and I good. Go, I go into detail on this point in the book that, uh, it's, again, it precisely, if you believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, in my opinion, humbly spoken, I hope, you have to believe in the ongoing operation of revelatory gifts. Right. Well, it's an important question, and it, and it really is coming back to the authority issue because you know, people are not wanting to compromise the authority of Scripture, which, of course, you're making the point that, like, hey, this is uh, I'm actually obeying what the Scripture authoritatively tells me. Uh, but on this point, uh, when you were talking, you you gave a definition for prophecy. I think it was something like uh, putting into human words a revelation mm-hmm. that God brought. Now, that seems yes. to be and I think that's uh, pretty close to Wayne Grudem's definition of it. It seems to be. Uh, a little bit different from the, or, or maybe significantly different than an Old Testament definition of what prophecy might have yeah. looked like. So, you know, if Isaiah says, thus says the Lord, you should probably think about doing it. Um, is it different between the Old Testament and the New Testament? I know that when, when Grudem talks about it, he says that uh, that New Testament apostles are uh, the same in authority as Old Testament prophets, and, and and yet New Testament prophets don't speak with the same authority because they're just sharing in human words the revelation. Is that a, is that a, a uh, an interpretation that you share, or if not, could you bring some clarity there? Yeah, I unashamedly stole Wayne's definition. Um, <laughs> yeah, I wasn't trying to like call it out or anything. <laughs> Yeah, pretend like we don't um, do it all the time, so it's no big deal. Yeah, I was emailing with Wayne today, in fact. He has not yet received his copy of my book, so I made sure that he has one on the way. Um, let me define prophecy again. I, I would say it is speaking forth in merely human words something that the Spirit of God has spontaneously revealed to the human heart. Now, Um, I think that in every genuine prophetic utterance, there are three elements. And this is not original with me. There's the revelation. That's the disclosure that God makes. There's the interpretation. Like, okay, God just revealed this or gave me an image or an impression or a vision or, or whatever. What does it mean? How do I make sense of it? Third, there's the application. All right, in light of what we think it means, here's what you should do with it. Here's how you should respond. 
only the revelation is infallible. We know that God always speaks infallibly, but we don't always interpret and apply infallibly. Let me just give you a quick example that I think everybody will recognize, right? God's word authoritative for us. But do we always interpret it accurately and perfectly? No. The fact of the matter is, um, you said it, so I'll just take advantage of it. Ben Witherington, who is a theological Arminian, I'm a Calvinist, we interpret the Bible differently. We, we have the written, infallible revelation of God, and yet we both have different interpretations. So one of us is right, one of us is wrong. I won't make a claim that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but then we also, in, in our efforts to make that word relevant to people, Sometimes we'll apply it correctly. Sometimes we'll misapply it. So think about this. If we have the infallible written word right in black and white, right in front of us, we can read the same Greek and Hebrew words, the same English words in translation, and we misinterpret them. Why would we be surprised that when God reveals something to our minds directly that we might misinterpret and misapply it as well? So, um, it seems to me that that uh, the idea that somehow a prophetic revelation is always going to be communicated with 100% accuracy um, is just it's just not true. Obviously, if it were, Paul wouldn't have to say, "Look, don't just take it as 100% accurate. Weigh it, assess it, evaluate it, um, judge it, sift it." remove those elements that that obviously are a human contribution so that you can speak forth what God himself has disclosed to you. Um, I do have an entire chapter in my book, by the way, entitled, Is the New Testament Spiritual Gift of Prophecy Different from the Old, Te- from Old Testament Prophecy? And um, I, I try to build what I call a cumulative case. Let me, let me be perfectly honest and forthright. There's no single text which by itself says but there is a cumulative case that can be built on the basis of what the New Testament does say about how prophecy was exercised in practice that leads me to conclude that the New Testament gift differs from that which Isaiah or Daniel or some other Old Testament prophet spoke. Um, there just, there's just so many obvious differences. Um, I'll, just, I'll just give you one quick one. If the cessationist is correct, and all New Testament prophecy is apostolic in its authority, and uh, and just as much a thus saith the Lord uh, dictum as the Old Testament, then think about what that means. That means that Philip's four daughters, described in Acts 21, were all speaking authoritative apostolic authority words binding upon all God's people for all ages. And yet we don't have a single one of their utterances. Think about, think about uh, Acts 2. Spirit of God is poured out, not just on a select few, but upon all flesh, male and female, young and old, maid servants, old men, young men, and they will prophesy. So if the cessationist is correct, every single individual believer in the current church age is speaking forth infallible, foundational, apostolic-level authority words that bind the conscience and the behavior of every Christian in every age. That's what the cessationist argument entails. But that's not what we see in the New Testament. Think. Let me just go back to that one text I gave you, 1 Corinthians 14.1. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. If the cessationist argument is correct, and New Testament prophecy is the same as Old Testament prophecy, Paul is saying, hey, Corinthians, every one of you, male and female, young and old, hey, Thessalonians, Galatians, Romans, Colossians, Ephesians, everybody else and every other church in the first century, I want all of you to earnestly desire to speak apostolic level authoritative words binding on the conscience of all God's people that lay the foundation for the church universal. Is that I, really he's probably what not saying that. Saying? <laughs> I just, I, 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 that's terrifying to me. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah. It's just not true to what we see when we look at how prophecy is actually practiced in the New Testament. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I'm, I'm kind of shocked by is that these groups are often complementarian groups. And they're like, hey, 
um, you know, throughout Paul's day to today, they didn't allow women to preach or teach or exercise authority over men, but they could prophesy. So they could write scripture, yeah. but they can't teach it, uh, which, <laughs> which is, I think, kind of a... Uh, yeah, I hadn't thought odd, about that one. It's odd, yeah. it's odd argumentation, um, but I make I make that point in the book. I, I ask the question. Now, I'm a complementarian. Yeah, me too. It's my complementarian brothers and sisters. What do you do with Philip's four daughters? What do you do with First Corinthians eleven? Mm-hmm. Women prophesying in the corporate gathering. What do you do about Acts two? Young women, old women, maid servants, all prophesying. So, so the complementarian would then the complementarian cessation is going to have to say. All these women throughout the first century and even beyond are speaking forth apostolic, authoritative words binding on the conscience of all people. Oh, oh, but we won't allow them to teach in the corporate gathering of the church. Uh, we, we can't we can't allow that to happen. How does that work? Oh, yeah, it's it's an odd. I've never heard. An and I've, I've, I've pressed cessationist on this and like it. I think they, they, they've skirted in the past. I had a, it, it's neither here nor there. Um, but, but in talking about authority, I'm curious if, if we're going to say that prophecy doesn't have the authority of scripture. And I, I would like to move on to like cascade arguments and other kind of cessationist arguments here in a second. But I'd love to clarify this point out of sheer interest because I, I don't have a good answer for this. Um, it seems as if there are different kinds of authorities that operate within a Christian's life that we're called to be obedient to. Right. So there we are called to be obedient to authorities and rulers that have been set over us. Right. It seems as if even nature, in a sense, is able to uh, 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 bear against our conscience. Like in Romans, it says nature testifies and and we're held accountable to that, uh, to nature, uh, kind of morally. In, In the same way, when a prophecy is given. And I know that it's from God. Have a dream, wake up. Michael tells me the dream and its interpretation without knowing the dream. Two people at a gas station walk up to me, repeat the dream to me. This is its interpretation. I know without a shadow of a doubt that God is getting my attention. If I don't do that thing, is it sin? What kind of moral obligation is not not on, mm-hmm. not on a not on a random prophetic cookie dream, but on a for sure, I know this is God kind of dream. What level of authority does it hold? That's an incredibly important question. I don't know that I have an incredibly great answer. Um, I would, again, my first thing, the first thing I do is go back to First Thessalonians 5. Yeah. Whatever Paul means when he says, test everything, hold fast to what is good. Mm-hmm. I say your responsibility is if you determined that it is good, in other words, I think by that he means truly from God, hold fast to it, obey it, follow that. Um, Not to do so, you're asking the question, would it be sin? Uh, Let me just simply say, I think it would be profoundly unwise. Amen. Uh, Reason I'm saying that instead of using the word sin is because typically we want to say that sin is a willful violation of what is explicitly revealed in Scripture. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that there aren't other ways to sin. Uh, like you said, if, if, if this is confirmed, if it's consistent with the Word of God, if it bears out in your experience, if, if others have testified to its accuracy, would it be sin for you to disobey it? Um, I think each individual has to answer that question for himself or herself. Um, I mean, I know that when I left Kansas City and went to teach at Wheaton College, I had 15 to 20 explicit dreams, words, providential events that indicated I was to go. If you had asked me then, Sam, if you had chosen not to go, not to accept their offer and to stay in Kansas City, would you have sinned? I would say yes, because I, I, I could see very clearly what God was telling me to do. Uh, but again, that's for me personally. That doesn't apply to anybody else because, again, um, the only thing that applies universally that requires universal obedience is the written word of God, 66 books of the canon. Uh, another I- illustration that would help us is uh, Acts 21, where pro- the prophets uh, in Tyre and Philip's four daughters and Agabus all tell Paul through the spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. I said, if you go, you're, you're going to be arrested. You're going to be killed. It's, it's, it's bad. 
And yet Paul said, well, I'm sorry, but the spirit of God has already borne witness to my heart that in every city where I go, I'm going to, I'm going to be beaten and cast into chains and my life is going to be in jeopardy. Uh, I know the spirit of God is telling me, he says, I'm constrained by the spirit to go. So Paul disobeyed what the prophets at Tyre and the four daughters of Philip and Agabus told him to do because he had already heard clearly for himself what the spirit told him to do. If Paul had yielded to what Agabus and those disciples at Tyre had said, he would have been in sin. Why? Because he already had repeated confirmation from the spirit that he was supposed to go to Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. So it is a difficult question to answer because, you know, we typically reserve the word sin for willful disobedience to what's written in God's word. But again, I think in, it has to come down to an individual evaluation in each person's life uh, to, the, to, to answer the question, to what extent are you utterly and absolutely persuaded? So, for example, the word of God says, flee fornication. No argument there. There's no way you can say, well, I'm not sure I heard God right about that. No, no, it's there over and over again. For you to commit fornication is sin. It's willful disobedience of a clear and explicit statement from Scripture. The kinds of things we're talking about with prophetic utterances uh, are not always quite so explicit. There is that element of, of, of human contribution added on to God's revelation by which we interpret and apply it that can sometimes muddy the waters. Paul says, verse 13, we know in part, we prophesy in part. He says it, it's partial. We need to reckon with that fact. It's not empirical science. So I guess I, I'm not trying to weasel out of an answer. I guess what I'm trying to say no, is. it's good. Would you be willing to to meet me halfway and say it might not be sin, but to say it does have authority? Because that's 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 the area that I'm, I think it's not scripture authority. It's more than created order authority. And it's probably even more than government authority, but it's not scripture. Yeah. Would, you, would you be comfortable with that? Yeah, I'd be comfortable with that. I mean, Paul in 1 Corinthians 14 you know, says if anyone who's a prophet there in Corinth uh, says something contrary to what I, the apostle, have written to you, <clears throat> don't listen to him. Yeah. So, so yeah, I think it bears a personal authority for that individual. I don't think it would necessarily apply across the board to other individuals. Flee fornication applies to every Christian. The promptings, the leadings, the words that I received. Uh, to go to Wheaton, for example, in the year 2000, were for me. I think it bore authority in my life, and I think I would have been in sin if I had disobeyed it. Yeah, That's good. I like that. I, I like that scale of authority personally, because to me, I feel like a I feel like a prophetic word can can be binding on the conscience. It'll just never be as binding as the most clear word that we have, which is the word of Scripture. But but I think if Paul and Barnabas were like, well, we're not going to be set apart for the work of the Holy Spirit. We're just going to stay here in Antioch. I think that would have been sin. And if in Acts 16, they're like, I don't really want to go to Macedonia and help that guy who's waving at Paul in his dream. You know, like, I think that would have been sin. But personally, but uh, I, I feel as though that there's a different level of authority when when prophetic words have less clarity. They have to be weighed and they have to be sifted. I think God's going to hold us like the greater the revelation, the greater the clarity of the revelation, the greater the accountability, I think is how I would yeah. how I would say. By the way, that's, a, that's an excellent example you cite there from Acts 13, uh, beginning in verse 1. Paul and Barnabas didn't know that they were supposed to go on these missionary journeys because of anything they read in the Bible or anything they had in the Old Testament or anything in the, the emerging scriptures at that time in the first century. How did they know that they were supposed to go? because the spirit of God revealed it to prophets in Antioch. Um, and my God, you know, I'm quite certain they really prayed about it. They evaluated it. They assessed it. They came to the conclusion. Yeah. That spirit of God really said that Paul Barnabas, I think you really ought to go. Uh, and I think you're right. It would have been sin had they not gone, even though it isn't because they had a text in scripture telling them to go. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know you've written some uh, to kind of 
broaden the the discussion a little bit. I know you wrote so much, uh, so comprehensively in your book, and I know you have a few chapters devoted to words of wisdom and words of knowledge. I'd love for you to to share a little bit on your perspective of what is Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he discusses those two specific <laughs> gifts. I wish that he defined it for us. <laughs> yeah. By well, the way, Sam's chuckling. I, I think, think he does too. <laughs> yeah, I think most people know this. If they don't, they, they might be surprised to hear this. The only place in the New Testament that where word of knowledge and word of wisdom are explicitly described in those terms is 1 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, where he lists those as two gifts. They are nowhere mentioned otherwise. Now, I do believe that Paul has in mind word of knowledge in 1 Corinthians 13. Um, I'm just going to read it. I've got it up, my Bible open to it, believe it or not, where Paul says, um, if, I have all, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, mm. and given the fact that he's talking there about prophecy in that context, I think he's talking about word of knowledge. But aside from that, we don't have a definition of those gifts. Um, I do. Be, I, I have a chapter going into some detail on both of them. I think what we have to rely on are at least possible examples of those gifts in operation, and we do have examples of that in First Corinthians, or excuse me, in the Book of Acts, for example. How did Peter know that Ananias and Sapphira had lied about the money that they were giving and that they had held back some for themselves? Mm. How did they know that? Could it have been the knowledge of that truth revealed to them, which they then spoke forth? Mm -hmm. So it's a spoken utterance of knowledge that they gained from the Holy Spirit. Or when Paul looked at the, the, the young paralytic and he saw that he had faith to be healed, how did how did how did that happen? What did he see? Did he just perceive? Maybe that was a revelatory word. Um, you know, I, I think those are perhaps, and there are some other examples that I, um, you know, the Acts 16, the, the demonized uh, slave girl who kept yelling out at Paul. How, how did Paul know that she had a demon? Um, maybe it was discerning of spirits and not word of knowledge, but, um, you know, Paul calls out Elimas the magician. I think that's in Acts 14. And, and you know, declares that he is un, uh, in, enslaved to Satan and then, um, um, Peter, when he recognizes in Simon in Acts chapter 8, uh, Simon is trying to buy the spirit with money. These are perhaps examples of word of knowledge. Uh, the difference between word of knowledge and word of wisdom is very minimal. Word of knowledge would be the spirit disclosing or revealing to you information or facts that you otherwise would not know about a person or a situation. Word of wisdom would be the spirit of God disclosing uh, the practical decisions that need to be made in light of any particular set of circumstances. Um, but again, aside from that, it's hard to differentiate between them. People then often ask, okay, what's the difference between word of knowledge and prophecy? I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, obviously the Corinthians knew. Paul didn't feel like he had to go into much more detail. Um, I don't think it's necessarily that important for us to know. If Paul didn't go into detail differentiating what they are, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time worrying about it. Excellent. So I'm going to throw you another softball question that's just as easy as the word of knowledge. He's like, he's this, like, just wait. This means for it. it's hard. Yes. Okay. So um, <laughs> apostles. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Modern day apostles. Do we have them today? Apostle Josh Lewis. If, if what you, do you think of that title? If you, I it is my least favorite title. Um, as far as apostles go. Um, Again, just a clarifying question. If we say there are not apostles today, aren't we in a sense cessationists as well to say that we believe that something has ceased? That's a, that's a cessationist. All right. Let me, let me answer that one. First of all, by this response, I've had that thrown at me, Sam, if you don't believe the gift of apostleship is valid today, then you are a cessationist. And my response is you believe the gift of teaching is still valid today. You must be a continuationist. <laughs> That's <Damn. good. laughs> I wish I could drop it cuts both right ways. <laughs> Think about all the gifts that even cessationists believe still continue. So I guess they're continuationists also. So that's a no, no, uh, this isn't about you, Josh. No, it's a 
dumb argument. Oh, I, I don't take it personally. It's not my argument. <laughs> yeah, it's just a dumb argument. It cuts both ways. It doesn't help us at all. Now, having said that, I, I devote two chapters to really examining closely all the major texts in the New Testament on apostleship and what would lead us to conclude either they are or not meant for the present day. Um, so, spoiler alert, I do believe that the New Testament allows for the existence of apostles today. Mm-hmm. Now, that it's important for me to say as well, um, that doesn't mean the canon is open. It doesn't mean that anybody today has the authority to write scripture. Let's not forget that there were a lot of apostles who never wrote scripture. So to say that the existence of apostleship somehow opens up the canon is, again, another dumb argument because there were numerous apostles who obviously operated with great authority who never wrote scripture. So writing scripture is not a necessary attribute of somebody who has an apostolic gift. Now, another point that's important that I, again, I go into real detail on this in the book. Those two chapters are probably the most technical of all in the book. They're the last two chapters, so I kind of pushed it at the back. But the argument is often made that to be an apostle, you had to have seen and heard the risen Christ, an eye-ear witness of the risen Christ. And I push back against that. I don't believe that's true. I believe that what Acts and 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Corinthians 15 teach us is that to be one of the 12, you had to have been an eye and ear witness of the risen Christ. In other words, when when Judas committed suicide and they were making a decision about who should replace him, they said it has to be somebody who's been with us from the very beginning all the way up to the resurrection of Jesus. So what they're doing is, they're what Luke is doing, he's laying down a criterion for being qualified to serve as one of the 12. But there's no reason to think that he would then apply that across the board to all other potential apostles. Um, so I think that there are numerous texts that indicate to us that apostleship is an important gift and does exist in the present day. And, and I know the pushback. People say, that scares me, because doesn't apostleship carry with it an authority that could really lead to abuse? Well, let's stop and think about that. The New Testament is very clear in telling us that elders are the authorities of the local church. They, we are to submit to the elders of the local church. They have the responsibility to impose discipline and to lead us. Can we not use the same argument to reject elders? Say, whoa, that's scary. What about elders who might abuse their authority and lead us astray or, or, or oppress us in, in our Christian living? Well, that's a very real possibility, but we don't throw out elders because of that. We just are very careful to make sure their elders are godly, humble men who have truly been called and appointed by the Spirit. So the fact that any gift, any office can be abused is no reason to reject it. Everything in Scripture can be abused. Every doctrine can be taken to an extreme that's unhealthy and destructive. That doesn't mean that we reject everything. We just have to be discerning and diligent and and look at what the Scripture says. So I do believe that um, apostles still exist. Uh, I don't believe they have Scripture writing authority. I don't believe they have universal authority over the whole body of Christ. Listen, not, not even Paul had universal authority. Remember when he said in Corinthians, he said, if I don't have, if I'm not an apostle to you, at least I, or to us, at least I am to you. Um, so Paul did not claim a universal authority by virtue of his apostolic calling. So um, I don't, I don't embrace, and this is another controversial issue. I don't embrace some of the teaching of the new apostolic reformation. Uh, I don't believe that apostles are replacing elders um, and pastors in the local church in terms of government. Um, We don't have an apostle at Bridgeway Church. It'd be great if we did. I I don't think anyone has that gifting or that calling. Uh, I don't, as far as I could tell. I've known some who I believe have an apostolic gift. I think John Wimber, who um, kind of founded and led the the vineyard, was apostolic. I think Mike Bickle at IHOP has an apostolic calling on his life. I think Terry Virgo in the UK, who led uh, you know, New Frontiers Ministries, uh, most likely is an apostle. 
Um, so there are some who have that gifting and that calling, but that's no threat to the finality of scripture. It's no threat that somebody's going to write something that, you know, that carries the authority of the book of Romans. Um, but it is a controversial subject and that's why I devote two chapters to it. Thank you so much for that. And, and for all those of you who are out there, y- y'all heard Sam say that he was coming back on the show to talk about the new apostolic reformation. You heard it here first. Yes. Uh, we've got so many people asking about yeah, that lately. Yeah. So he, he, he we, just brought it up, which means he signed up for it. Uh, yeah. no, uh, Michael, sorry. So, uh, Sam, do you think? By the way, quick, let, wait, let me say something. Sure. I have, I have some friends who would identify with that movement that are godly, great Christian, humble people. So I don't want to dismiss everybody who identifies with the NAR. Sure. Uh, I, I would just say there are some things about it that concern me. I would certainly not want to endorse it without qualification. Right. Okay. That's good. For How's sure. that for hedging my yeah, bets? That's helpful. So, um, could you uh, talk to us a little bit about maybe Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse twelve, where it descri- describes the signs of a, of an apostle? These were the signs mm. of a true apostle, and he says it. Uh, gosh, the, the exact wording. I think I have it here. I do. I'll just read it. This is your favorite version of the Bible, the ESV. Okay. Yeah, I'm looking at it too. Okay. <laughs> the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So if somebody says to you, hey, the if to be an apostle, you had to perform signs and wonders. Um, I don't know if Terry Virgo's doing that, or I don't know if any of these guys, they're, they're certainly not having their handkerchiefs heal people like John Wimber did, or, or sorry. <laughs> that was what I was trying Called to say. Yourself out. Even, even John, you know, even John Wimber for all the healings that he claimed to have, you know, he wasn't seeing the kind of healings and miracles that Paul had and, and so on. What would you say to somebody who said that? So I guess there's really two questions. One is just your exegetical understanding of that verse. And then two is the objection that might be based upon it. Sure. Yeah, I have a, an extensive treatment of this verse in my book um, in the chapter on what are the arguments for cessationism. And this is one of the t- texts that they will cite. Um, again, I don't want to get overly technical, but let me just point out something. The ESV properly renders this verse. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience. Now, the noun signs is in the nominative case in Greek, but signs, wonders, and mighty works are in the dative case. In other words, if Paul was going to identify the signs of an apostle as being signs, wonders, and mighty works, he would have had to have put those three nouns in the nominative case as well. That's why the ESV translates it the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with or accompanied by signs and wonders and mighty works. He's not equating the mm-hmm. two signs of an apostle are signs, wonders, and mighty works. He's saying that these signs of a true apostle were performed among you. And I, I talk in my book about what those were um, kind of self-sacrifice, humility, um, success in, in conversions, um, uh, persecution, uh, being slandered, all of the things that Paul says are true of those who have been called as apostles. And I think that's what he's saying here. He said, those signs were evident among you. You saw them in me as I ministered in your midst. And they were accompanied by signs, wonders, and mighty works. So I don't believe he's saying that everyone who is an apostle will necessarily perform signs, wonders, and mighty works. Now, I do think that the original 12 did. Uh, maybe even the, the first 15, add a, a Paul, Barnabas, and Silas to that group. They are shown in the New Testament as performing signs and wonders. Uh, but that doesn't mean that all apostles will do that. Those aren't the signs of an apostle. Those are accompanying features of apostolic ministry. But you can be an apostle and not necessarily perform those works. Now, as far as today is concerned, um, the names you mentioned, I think many of them have, in fact, been used of God in the performance of signs, wonders, and miraculous works. Are they at the same level and consistency and frequency as the original first century apostles? No. But again, we don't do anything today 
at the same level or with the same frequency or success as the first century apostle. I don't, I don't teach like Paul. Nobody plants churches like he did. Um, there no, nobody evangelizes with the success uh, that we see in Paul's ministry. So yes, there was an extraordinary um, power of the spirit operative in that early company of the followers of Jesus uh, that we might not necessarily see reproduced today. But that doesn't mean, don't draw the wrong conclusion, that doesn't mean that God isn't still performing signs, wonders, and miracles, because I believe that he is. That's helpful. And uh, I've got a couple questions from uh, Stephen DeYoung. He makes he makes a statement here uh, that it seems as if you've, you've made a uh, kind of explanations of what uh, how apostleship can be used badly, how it can be used negatively. Uh, but he, he also says here, I'd like to hear what exactly an apostle is. And I'm, I'm going to paraphrase his thing because it's so far away and hard for me to read. Um, but it says an apostle does X or an apostle does Y. Instead, of, Because we've said if they have authority, it might be abused. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't do it. So we've kind of taken out a lot of these arguments about uh, poor apostleship or what apostleship is and isn't. Would you say that apostles are just sent ones like missionaries? Uh, is it that broad? Is there more authority that they're given? How would you define what is an apostle? Um, I think I would agree with essentially what you just said. I think an apostle is somebody who is uniquely called and empowered by the Spirit to break new ground in evangelistic outreach, uh, to take the word of God to unreached people groups, to plant churches. Um, I think apostles in the present day um, can lead movements and networks of uh, local churches and ministries. Um, I think that to whatever extent, um, so let me just give you an example. Let's say that, um, um, you know, he probably wouldn't agree to this, but uh, let me just use Matt Chandler as an example. Uh, Matt would probably really get mad at me for suggesting that he might have an apostolic calling. I'll send him the link. What? <laughs> I'll, send, I'll send him the link. Uh, <laughs> but I tend to think that he probably does, but over whom does he have any kind of authority? The answer is only those to whom they willingly submit themselves. Hmm. In other words, only those who willingly submit themselves to his authority. So, for example, by joining the Acts 29 network, we have willingly acknowledged Matt as our leader, as the president of the network. Um, doesn't mean that he can uh, dictate the way things are done in our local church. Only elders can do that. But as, and again, I'll put it in quotes so Matt won't get upset, as an apostle in the present day, he has been used powerfully by God to spread the gospel through a, a church planning network that has encircled the earth. And I think he has the capacity to speak into the lives of those who are part of that network uh, in ways that someone like myself cannot do. So I think apostles, um, you know, we read about Titus. I think Titus was probably an apostle. I think Timothy probably was as well. I, I talk about each of them in my book. Um, certainly they, uh, they might have the authority in new church plants to appoint elders. You know, he, he told Titus, go and appoint elders in every city. Well, when the gospel spreads into unreached regions and it's never been established before and the church is desperately in need of leadership, maybe an apostle today would have the authority and the discernment of God to be able to appoint elders, at least initially, for that new work uh, in that particular location. So I have some other things about first century, but obviously there is no apostle today who would write scripture just as there were apostles in the first century who didn't write scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, Sam, one of the most common questions I've had, I've received as a pastor is how do we receive and grow in our spiritual gifts? Could you speak into that? I know you talk about it a lot in your book, but could you discuss mm -hmm. it? Well, let's just take a couple of examples. Uh, let's take the spiritual gift of teaching. I think I have the spiritual gift of teaching and I've had it, I think for many, 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 many years. I've been in ministry, public ministry for 46 years now, but my gift of teaching early on was raw and unrefined and, uh, maybe even 
not really helpful to a lot of people. But over time, with the help of the Spirit, the deeper study of Scripture, the counsel of people who said, hey, can we point out some, some suggestions here about things you might do, things you might avoid? Here's something you do that's annoying. Here's what you do that's really encouraging. I think I've grown in my facility in that spiritual gift. Um, I think if that, I think you could apply that across the board to virtually every gift. Think about the gift of prophecy. I know that you guys um, operate in the gift of prophecy. Think about how you did the first few times you stepped out in faith and attempted to, to prophesy. And you say, wow, I wish I hadn't made that mistake and kind of, well, I hadn't used that wording and that wasn't the right place to do it. And um, I kind of misread the crowd and what was happening in that particular moment. But you grow, you develop, you mature, just as we do in all areas of the Christian life. Uh, people with the gift of evangelism. Um, people with the gift of evangelism can um, um, early on maybe seem a little bit pushy and oppressive, maybe browbeat the unbeliever, uh, maybe use intimidation when they really should be very humble and, and, uh, and, 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 and softer in their explanation of the truth of the gospel. They grow, they develop, they, they read books, they look at other people who are more skilled than they are. So this is true across the board with every spiritual gift. Um, when I first began praying in tongues, uh, it was like my little 14-month-old granddaughter who babbles, and I didn't think there was much to it. But as the Spirit of God began to deepen that in my experience and my facility in that began to grow, um, uh, I think it's much more effective now than it was then. I think every spiritual gift can, can operate at differing levels of effectiveness uh, and accuracy and helpfulness. Um, so yeah, I think we have to study. We have to hang out with people who, who have the same gift and who do it better than we do. Um, we have to constantly seek input from those around us. Tell me how, tell me how the exercise of my gift wasn't helpful to you and tell me what was helpful and how could it be done uh, in a more Christ exalting uh, and humble way. So I think that applies across the board to all spiritual gifts. Okay. Well, and then, um, and then on the receiving end, we have uh, one of our viewers talking about 1 Timothy 4.14, uh, where Timothy received a gift through the laying on of hands. Mm -hmm. and, and as far as the, the receiving end of it, to what degree is there a personal responsibility to go after it or, or people imparting? And to what degree is there just a sort of sovereign, you know, the Holy Spirit gives sure. as he wills, 1 Corinthians 12.11? How does that interact? Yeah, First uh, Corinthians twelve eleven. The, the the Spirit apportions gifts according to His will. Paul writes that, and then just a chapter later, Paul says, "Earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy." So, yeah, we have Spirit is utterly sovereign in the distribution of gifts according to His will, not ours. Oh, but Paul says, "Earnestly desire these gifts, especially prophecy." Uh, do not forbid speaking in tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, 13, let the one who, who prays in a tongue pray that he may interpret. Ask God for the gift of interpretation. So um, I think we do have a responsibility to pray for, to study, to pursue, to constantly step out and maybe take some risks in the exercise of what we think might be a gift God has given to learn from our mistakes. So God is sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over salvation, but that doesn't mean that I'd stop preaching the gospel mm -hmm. is the means God uses to accomplish his sovereign will. Same way with spiritual gifts. Uh, whether somebody is healed or not is subject to God's sovereign will. That doesn't mean I don't pray for healing because James says in James five sixteen, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Mm -hmm. so I think there's a balance between God's sovereign distribution of gifts and our sensing, for example, um, I, I, we talked about this when we talked about my book on tongues. Um, I despised the gift of tongues for many, many years. And then suddenly I found as I studied it and as I prayed and I thought about it and looked at scripture, I suddenly found this desire welling up within me for that gift. And it just became just overwhelming to the degree that I prayed 
nightly for six weeks in a row that God would grant me that gift. And I would always say, but only if that is your will for me. If not, I'll be happy with the gifts I already have. And then one night he surprised me with it. Lo and behold, it's one of the most precious gifts that I have that I exercise daily. So there is that element of desire. That is, there is that element of what are others around us saying about how we minister to them? Are we effective and helpful? Um, do we do we study the gift? Do we read books about it? Do we confide with others who, who might operate in that gifting? All of these things, I think, play into the question of whether we will receive a gift and how that uh, is subsumed under God's sovereign will. That's great. Hey, so uh, we, we've actually kept you a little bit longer un unbeknownst to us. Our timer was out. So thank you so much for coming on. It's such an honor to have you here uh, on the program. It's going to be fun. I think in November, we're going to drive up, try to do an in-person interview. Really looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. uh, but for those who are out there, maybe they're just now tuning in, but maybe as a reminder, tell them about yourself, your ministry, how they can get in contact with you. Maybe they're in Oklahoma and they want to, they want to check out Bridgeway or, uh, 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 the, your book that's come out, maybe they're not in yeah. local to you, uh, but are interested in picking up that content. Where would they find the book? How do they get connected to your church? Yeah, well, if you go to my website, samstorms.org, you'll see the book listed in the right-hand column. And if you click on it, that'll take you directly to Amazon. Barnes & Noble carries it as well, uh, christianbook.com. Most Christian bookstores will now as well. Um, by the way, I'll just throw this one little... Um, bait out to you guys, maybe for a future program. People ask me, what did I do during COVID shutdown? I wrote two books. One <laughs> is the sequel to this book, Dang. Spiritual Gifts, A Comprehensive Guide. I wrote Understanding Spiritual Warfare, A Comprehensive Guide. Oof. It's going to be long, about 350 pages. That'll be out in April from Zondervan. Oh, um, man. So so it looks like we're going to get a couple of interviews in. It's what it sounds okay. like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, bridgewaychurch.com, uh, all of my sermons, you can watch them video, you can listen audio, all of the sermon notes, you know, the manuscripts from my messages are always attached to virtually probably 90, 95% of the sermons I preach. Mm. So you can download those uh, and they just have the notes right there completely. And again, on my website, I encourage people, um, my copyright law is you have the right to copy and uh, just have it and uh, make use of it however you see fit. And I hope it will be helpful to the body of Christ. So, um, yeah, I don't know what else to say. Yeah. Any other answers to that question? That's it. You have been. You have been a huge help to the body of Christ. You're, you're one of our heroes. We think the world of you. We're really looking forward to uh, to being with you soon. And for those of you who are tuning in, first time to Remnant Radio, hit the subscribe button as we're constantly coming out with new content just like this every Monday night at 8.30 p.m. Central Time and uh, 4.30? Or is it 4? It's 4 p.m. Tomorrow? On four. Tuesday. <laughs> it's when we usually come out with content. We've got so much content this week. It's four episodes and then a three-hour edit that we're working on. And then tonight, if you're right now, if you're watching, you want to come back in, uh, Dr. Ben Witherington III uh, will be on to talk about Armenian theology. Uh, Dr. Storms will be in the comment section trolling. So if you're Armenian, if you're a Calvinist out there, you can join with Dr. Storms trolling the conversation. We'll be looking forward to it. It'll be a, oh, be a lot of fun. Uh, anyway, thank you, Sam, for coming back on. Uh, again, it's, it's always a pleasure to have you. You're welcome, guys. Good to be with you. Blessings. Yes. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.